Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Um, for those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Dr. Shaw Shea is a senior research fellow of the International Policy Institute for Counterterrorism, ICT, and former director of research at the Institute for Strategy and Policy at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, Israel. Dr. Shea served in the IDF as a senior officer in the military intelligence and he was the deputy head of the Israeli National Security Council. Dr. Shea is the author and the editor of 20 books. His last books are The Red Sea Region, um, Between War and Reconcili Reconciliation, which is available today on our book table, is Israel and Islamic Terror Abductions, and Somalia in Transition Since 2006. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you. Maybe you can come closer. I think that it's a very intimate group, so uh, I'm not sure that I need the phone. Right? Okay, so I'm going to speak today about the Red Sea region between war and reconciliation. As Hannah mentioned before, it's my latest book. And uh, I'm studying the Red Sea region for more than a decade. And actually, this is my fourth book dealing with the region from different perspectives. The first one was published in 2005. Uh, the name of the book was the Terror Triangle of the Red Sea, and according to the name, it was dedicated to the terrorism in this region. And the two other books were a kind of zoom in into Somalia. The first one dealt with the history of uh, Somalia till 2006, and the second between 2006 to 2013. In this book, uh, the Red Sea region, it, it, uh, between uh, war and uh, reconciliation, I try to bring a more comprehensive approach. And when we speak about this region, in most of the cases, if you go to the existing uh, analysis that's relevant to the region, it's either included in what we call Middle Eastern studies, I mean relating to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, the rest of the Middle East, or African studies that relate to Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, and so on. I hope that till my end of my uh, presentation, you will be convinced that it's necessary to start to look at this region as a region. And uh, first of all, When we look at the map, we can understand the geostrategic importance uh, of the Red Sea region. We can see that actually this maritime route is one of the most important to the global trade. And just to give you an uh, impression regarding the figures, 
Uh, 10% of the global maritime trade is crossing this uh, maritime route monthly. About 4% of uh, the world's daily crude oil supply and gas supply is going through this uh, Red Sea uh, region. So I think that from the economic point of view, the importance is clear. And of course, any disruption to the free navigation in uh, this uh, area uh, of course, uh, affects the uh, global uh, economy. Just to give you an example, uh, let's say 10 years ago, maybe it will sound strange, but the main problem in the region, especially in this area close uh, to the coast of Somalia, were pirates. And uh, it sounds strange, but the fact is that the uh, insurance uh, uh, made, I think, uh, at the height of the pirate attacks, it was almost doubled. And of course, the effect on the global economy is, is tremendous. <coughs> Today, this is not the main problem, and I will not relate to it in my presentation, but I just try to give you an idea about the sensitivity of this uh, region. But this is not the only importance. A second geopolitical importance of the region is that some of the great powers, and especially China, considered the Red Sea and the ports of the Red Sea as the gate to Africa. And just to tell you that between 2000 to 2017, China invested in Africa $143 billion you can understand what is the importance. And it's not surprising that China built its first military base out of the borders of China, where? Not in the South China Sea. Here in Okay? So, already I mentioned two main uh, reasons why this region is so important. The third one, which is not less important, and I will relate to it uh, later in uh, details, we have to take in consideration that this region is a kind of extension for the Middle East, for good and bad. And we can see that all the current conflicts that are going on in the Middle East, we can see the reflection in this uh, area. So if, I, if we can say that since 2011, the so-called uh, Arab Spring, I don't know who, who saw that it really looks like a spring, it's worse than a winter, but Anyway, uh, since 2011, when we look at the Middle East, it's an ongoing process of transition. We know what was the starting point. We don't know what will be the, the final uh, political uh, landscape that will be the result of this process. But what is important to understand is that it's first and above all an inter-Islamic competition. And there are four main forces that are fighting each other for dominance in the region. And the reflection of this conflict we can see as well in the Red Sea uh, region. So what are these four main schools or groups that are uh, fighting each other. First of all, it's Iran and the Shia alliance uh, that includes uh, pro-Iranian uh, parties and uh, militias in Iraq, and the Assad regime in uh, Syria, and Hezbollah in uh, uh, Lebanon, and the Houthis in Yemen, that I will discuss it in details later. 
And on the other side, uh, what we used to call the Saudi-led Sunni Arab coalition that represents the majority of the Arab states in the, in the Middle East. But this is only one competition in the Middle East and the Red Sea region. The second one is Turkey and Qatar that are representing the Muslim Brotherhood that for a while was on the rise in Egypt and elsewhere in the Middle East, but in a relatively short time were depressed. And Turkey with Erdogan, with his uh, neo-Ottoman ambitions, as you can see in the headlines in the last period in northern Syria, but, but you will see later that it's not just in Syria, it's far beyond. This is the second inter-Islamic power that engaged in this uh, competition. So, Shia Sunnah, represented by Iran and by Saudi Arabia, Muslim Brotherhood, represented by the regional power of, uh, of uh, Turkey, the so-called moderate Arab Sunni uh, uh, represented by Saudi Arabia, to a lesser degree by uh, Egypt, and the radical uh, jihadi Salafi Islamic movement that, let's say, the symbol and the leader of this movement, uh, thanks God and the U.S. Special Forces, is not with us any longer, but uh, the movement is still alive strong, and I will relate to the threat of these radical jihadists uh, later on. Oh. When I told you why uh, it's so important as a maritime route, you can see here, for instance, for the, let's say, shipment from the UK to India, if they use the route through the Red Sea, this is the distance. And what is the alternative? This is the alternative. You can imagine what, how to translate it to figures regarding prices and what should be the effect. This is also the reason that when China, which is the emerging power in the relevant region, for China, the Red Sea is a key maritime route in what they call the Belt and Road Plan, or in other words, the so-called modern Silk Road uh, uh, that uh, is connecting China with the markets in uh, Western uh, Europe. So, after understanding the importance of the uh, region, let's say, who composed what I call the Red Sea region? If I look at it from south to the north, it's starting with uh, Somalia. Somalia is not indeed a part of uh, the Red Sea, but it's unavoidable to include it because it's so close and relevant uh, to the region. Then we can see uh, Djibouti, Eritrea, Sudan, Egypt. This is the African coastline of the Red Sea. And Israel, uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. Nine countries, but it's not enough. We have to include, in, in order to understand the region, one of the main powers, in spite of the fact that it's a landlocked country, is of course Ethiopia. And without including Ethiopia in the analysis of the region, I think that any conclusion uh, will be a mistake. It's a country with more than 100 million people, uh, one of the 
most fast growing economy in uh, Africa with significant political influence in all the rest of the east or horn of Africa uh, area. Now, what are the main shock points? F first of all, what we call the Babel Mandeb uh, Strait, narrow about 20 kilometers between Djibouti, Eritrea, and Yemen. This is the southern entrance to the Red Sea. The second is not uh, straight, but the famous uh, Suez Canal, that is the northern uh, uh, exit from the or entrance, depends how we look at it, to the Red Sea region. And the third one, less important to the uh, international uh, geostrategic, but very important to two countries, Israel and Jordan, is the Strait of Iran between Egypt and uh, Saudi Arabia. And for Jordan, Aqaba is the only access to uh, sea. And for Israel, it's the only access to the Red Sea and through the Red Sea to China, uh, Japan, all, all the rest of uh, Asia, which is more than important for the Israeli uh, economy. When I speak about the uh, importance uh, of the Red Sea, I think that the best way to convince you that it's true is to look at a very small place near the Babel Manda, named Djibouti. Let's say the territory of Djibouti is about 23,000 square kilometers, with about 800,000 people. In Djibouti, for decades, it was considered as a U.S. Uh, center for influence in the region, with uh, Camp Limonaire as the biggest U.S. base in Africa of the U.S. Uh, African uh, Command, but they are not uh, alone any, any longer. As I said before, about four kilometers from Cap Limonera, the Chinese built their, their first uh, military base uh, out of the Chinese borders, and the Japanese, and the EU, France, of course, they were in Djibouti even before the Americans. And lately, Saudi Arabia. So imagine in such a small area, all these countries deployed military forces. Why? They decided to invest in this small place because of the most important strategic location of this place with a clear understanding that in this region it's not enough just to invest in the eco economy, you have to be capable to defend your interests, because the interests are challenged. Now, the problem is that when we look at the Red Sea region, unfortunately, this is one of the most unstable regions in the world. If I will just uh, go along the different conflicts, most of the countries along the Red Sea region suffer either from internal problems. For instance, Sudan, a huge country along the coastline of the Red Sea. They had a dictator, Omar al-Bashir, for 30 years. He was ousted by a military cup in 11th of April this year. Since then, it's less stable than before. If we look at the history, current history of uh, Sudan, 
genocide and ethnic cleansing in Darfur, uh, ongoing uprising in the Kordofan region. They solved the problems between the north and the south just five years ago, but the tensions still exist. In the newborn or formed South Sudan, an ongoing civil war. And I can continue with the rest. So on one hand, internal problems. On the other hand, between almost all the countries, there are either territorial disputes or other disputes. Some of them, when I will speak about the good news, some of them were solved lately. But we still enough, we have enough problems in the region that we have to take in consideration and to deal with. I would relate uh, to two conflicts that from my point of view are the most uh, sensitive and uh, uh, let's say the, the results of the way that these conflicts will end, uh, the effects will far beyond the region. The first one uh, is uh, the war in Yemen. And we have to take in consideration that one of the mistakes, mainly in Europe, but to a certain degree in the US as well, that if we look at the war in Yemen as an internal Yemeni problem between the Shia Houthis and the central uh, government of President Hadi and the separatists uh, in Aden and Al-Qaeda in certain areas of Yemen, this is a very narrow way to understand what's going on. And of course, the Saudis as the bad guys, because they are intervened in this war. They took the side of the so-called central government of uh, President uh, Adi. This is not the issue. And if we understand in a wider pers perspective, what are the Iranian strategic goals uh, I think that uh, it will lead to uh, different conclusions. The Iranian long-standing vision since 1979 is to export the revolution to the rest of the Arab world and, if it's possible, the Muslim world. Our time is short, so I, I will go to the uh, bottom lines. The Arab Spring gave Iran the golden opportunity to achieve this goal. And King Abdullah of Jordan was the first to use the term the Shia Crescent. What is behind this term? If you look at the map, here is Iran. Iraq, after 2003 and democratic elections, the Shia are the majority. So, Iraq is dominated by the Shia, and the part of the Shia are very close to the Iranian uh, policy. Then the war in uh, Syria gave Iran the opportunity to direct intervention and presence on the soil of Syria, and of course in Lebanon, it's Hezbollah, which is the dominant power. So what we have here is the Shia Crescent, northern flag, but it's not the whole story. From geostrategic point of view, what are the goals of Iran? What are, what are the main enemies of Iran? There are two. Israel on one hand. And Saudi Arabia on the other hand. So, what Iran tries to do after the success in the north, now they are going to the south. And their allies in the south of them are the Muslims. So, to make long story short, if I look at the Iranian involvement, it didn't start after 2000, it started much earlier. 
מצוות מהסירן אינקלודי חיזבאללה, חיזבאללה קומבטנטס אנד קונסלטנטס אר אין ימן ספורטינג זה מופלס. But Iran turned Yemen and the Houthis to a kind of laboratory and they test many of the new doctrines and many of the advanced uh, military assets in this theater. So I used to call the war in Yemen the forgotten war because nobody is interested in it. But almost every night Saudi Arabia is attacked, not along the border, deep in Saudi Arabia, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, drones, all by the Iranian support to the Houthis. Uh, so critical uh, maritime route. When something happens here in Ormos Street, everybody on alert. When it happens here, it hardly appears on the fifth page in the newspaper. But the Houthis are using all the technique that in a future conflict Iran will use in larger scale here. Anti ship missiles that they launch against both civilian and military targets, naval mines, remote-controlled unmanned uh, speedboats loaded with explosives against ships along the, the road. So the bottom line is that if we look at the Iranian vision, What they want to gain is the control of the Bormos state and Babel Mandar Strait. If it will be achieved, the game is over. Saudi Arabia is contained from north, east, and south, and Iran controls the two critical straits for the oil and gas to Europe. This, this is the issue. All the rest is, is, is not really important. So, I will move to another conflict that I, I think that it's even less known than uh, the war in Yemen. As I said before, Ethiopia is the most important country in the continent. With uh, demographic problems, I, I think that today there are more than 100 million people. They have problems with electricity, energy. So the uh, Ethiopian government took the decision in uh, 2007, but the implementation started in 2011, coincided with so-called Arab uh, Arab Spring, to build the biggest dam in uh, the African continent on the Blue Nile. So far it's okay. It's, it's important to the economic uh, development of Ethiopia. When it will be ready, Ethiopia will become one of the main exporters of energy in uh, Africa. So far so good. But the problem is that The downstream countries, to lessen degree Sudan, but mainly Egypt, Egypt depends on 98% of the water, of drinking water, of the agriculture, the industry, on the Nile. And of course, the Egyptian concern is that the dam will affect the share of the water that will arrive to Egypt. So they started to negotiate almost in 2011. Now we are in almost in 2020. In 2020, the Renaissance Dam will be almost ready, 
they plan to start to fill it behind the, the uh, dam will be a huge uh, reservation. But what is the main concern of Egypt? When it will be ready, let's say, more or less the same quota of water will go downstream. But in the period of the filling, no water will come from uh, the Blue Nile. And they unable to achieve an agreement regarding how many years it will take to the, to the Ethiopians to fill. Ethiopia, of course, <coughs> their interest is to do it as short as possible and to start to be benefited from the uh, energy production. The Egyptian interest is, of course, to postpone it as much as uh, possible. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, the new elected Prime Minister of Ethiopia uh, is the Nobel uh, Prize winner for peace. And I will explain why. He really did a great job. But I was surprised to hear uh, an announcement of the president that he said for Ethiopia the Renaissance then is critical and if it's necessary to sacrifice millions of people, if war will happen, he is ready. And you can see, hear the same declarations from President Sisi. He said for Egypt, the Nile is a matter of life and death. So I hope that uh, at least in the last moment they will find a solution. Otherwise, I think that these big powers of the region uh, will contribute to a further uh, serious crisis in the uh, region. Terrorism. Unfortunately, when we look at this sensitive region, the most important stronghold of Al-Qaeda in the last decade is in Yemen. With the war against the Houthis and so on in Yemen, they flourish. Because nobody pay attention to Al Qaeda. More than it, Al Qaeda is fighting alongside Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. So this is a big problem. The only party that is working all the time against uh, Al Qaeda is the United States from the base in Djibouti. From time to time, you can hear the made a targeted killing of one leader, another leader, but it's of course not enough uh, to change the situation here. And on the other side of the Babel Mandat in Somalia, this is the strongest Al-Qaeda stronghold in Africa. Al-Shabaab, a local organization that became the African branch of Al-Qaeda, uh, in the past, they controlled uh, even Mogadishu, the, the capital of uh, Somalia. After intervention of the uh, African Union, the Amazon forces, they were forced out of Mogadishu and most of the big cities, but they are still holding about 20% of Somalia. And as a kind of branch, they are operating as well in uh, Kenya and other countries in you can see here the most sensitive area is a concentration of Al-Qaeda uh, forces in the In the north, the branch of uh, the Islamic State, uh, the Sinai uh, province of the group, they are in ongoing confrontation with the Egyptian uh, forces since uh, 2014, the Egyptian success is limited. I mean, they are unable to depress them. They're still there, and it's an ongoing confrontation for, for good, I think. 
In Somalia, of course, the war is going on. I think that Somalia <coughs> is without a functioning regime since uh, uh, 1991, and I don't see uh, that it's going to happen in the uh, near future. Since time is short, I, I'm just running. Now, what we can see in the region, because of the different conflicts and the terror threat and so on, this is a new picture. Because in the past, we had the Arab states, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, as a result of the war in Yemen and the competition between Saudi Arabia and its coalition and Iran, in the past, Sudan was a main ally of Iran. Eritrea was open to Iranian uh, military forces. They used the Assad uh, port for the Iranian uh, Navy. Iran had a presence in Somalia. <coughs> One of the biggest achievements of the Saudi coalition is that they convince all the countries here to cut the diplomatic relations with uh, Iran. And the result was that, for instance, the United Arab Emirates built military bases in Eritrea. And they use these bases to operations in uh, Yemen. Saudi Arabia built military bases in Djibouti. And they operate from there uh, in Yemen. The United Arab Emirates are uh, present in Somalia. But as I told you before, it's a reflection of the overall conflicts in the Middle East. So who else is newcomer in the region? The alliance of Turkey and Qatar are in competition with Egypt on one hand and in competition with Saudi Arabia. So in 2018, uh, President Erdogan is his uh, Minister of Defense and Chief of Staff arrived to Sudan and signed a contract to rebuild the Riz, uh, an island uh, not far from the Saudi Arabian uh, coastline. It's called Suakin, that in the uh, Ottoman period it was a port city. And uh, they signed an agreement that they will rebuild this historical site, but as well a naval base for the Turkish. Turkey is very active in Somalia. They are training the Somalia national forces. Qatar is paying for all this Turkish initiative. So if you look at this map, you can understand that the whole region is full with new military activities that reflect the interests of the different uh, parties. And if I look at it from a different way of uh, analysis, in the book, I call it the Arab Red Sea. Because let's see what, what is the reality. Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Somalia, Djibouti, Sudan, all are members of the Arab League. All of them, actually, if we look at the Saudi Arabian coalition against the Houthis, they are part of the coalition. And most of them, they have common interests to keep the influence of the region. In last year, they formed first time a regional new security organization, the name is so long, so I, I, have, I have to read it, but it's the Arab and African coastal states and the Red Sea and the, the Gulf of Aden uh, uh, coalition. And one month ago, 
uh, they made the second military exercise, naval exercise of all the participants, who are not included in, I mean, they are a Red Sea region countries, but they're not included in this coalition as well. Eritrea and Ethiopia. So as long as uh, we have the common interests with, uh, let's say, the, the Saudi Arabian uh, coalition, it's okay. But if we look a little bit back to the history, Israel uh, fought three wars for the freedom of navigation in the, in the Red Sea in the past. We have to hope that for long we will be in very good relations. And so. But I would like to finish it with uh, some, uh, let's say, more uh, positive developments. First of all, some of the long conflicts were solved. Ethiopia ended the conflict with Eritrea. They signed the peace agreement. Eritrea uh, ended the conflict with Djibouti. They settled the problems. And some other uh, conflicts uh, regarding Somalia were solved as well. I think that one important uh, development that uh, make me a little bit more optimistic is the huge investments of all the parties in the region. And I will just mention briefly some of them. Egypt. Egypt uh, built the New Suez Canal. It's a kind of parallel uh, canal that shortened significantly the time of crossing the Suez Canal from north to south and vice versa. It was a huge project and along this area they are developing a, a commercial area and they encourage uh, investment and so on. Egypt under uh, President Sisi is going to mega projects. For instance, they are building a new administrative uh, capital. Uh, east of uh, Cairo and huge investments. Another uh, very significant uh, initiative, the, it, it's not yet in uh, process, but Egypt and Saudi Arabia signed agreement to build the King Salman Bridge over the Tirad Strait that will connect Sinai Saudi Arabia. So it, be, it will be the first bridge between Africa and uh, Asia. I'm not speaking about Israel that uh, could be uh, a bridge, but for political reasons it is not used. But of course it has a strategic influence. And of course for the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina, uh, it will be a real uh, important uh, development. Another huge project is the future city of uh, Neom. Uh, Saudi Arabia is going to invest uh, many billions of dollars uh, in this area and they will make joint ventures with Jordan and uh, Egypt. So again, a regional project that can contribute to the well-being of the people in the region. I mentioned the Renaissance Dam and almost along all the Red Sea, all the existing ports are in development process and many new locations, uh, China, uh, United Arab Emirates and others are building new ports. So why am I am optimistic? Because I think that for many parties in the region, they have more to lose. And this can contribute uh, to stabilize in some way the region. So to summarize it and to leave some time for a Q&A, the Red Sea region is a, at a crossroad. 
and uh, what will be the direction that we will see in the coming uh, year, I think uh, according to the experience in the Middle East, in our region, it will be too risky to try to predict. So I think it will give a lot of uh, materials to uh, scholars in the future to analyze and uh, uh, to write about uh, uh, the development. So I suggest that you will ask if you have questions and please. Uh, just a couple of comments. The uh, people in Yemen, the Houthis, are, are not really Shia. They are Zaidi. And Zaidi broke away from Shia hundreds of years ago. And I recognize it's a very common mistake. Even the New York Times blows it on a daily basis. Um, second thing, a lot of the technology being used by the Houthis is really embedded Quds Force guys. Uh, Houthis are not exactly high-tech operations, so um, clearly Iran is doing more than puppeteering. They're actually on the ground launching some of these things. Uh, the third thing about uh, capturing both of the straits, brilliant insight, I think you're exactly right. I think there's one other equally weighted motive for Iran. They would love to have a port, uh, a base on the Saudi border awaiting for the holy day in which the Saudi family, royal family, falls apart. And finally, their destiny of controlling the holy places becomes a reality. My question, um, when these outside nations are dealing with northern Somalia, are they dealing with the central government, or are they dealing with Somaliland and Puntland administrations, both of which would desperately love to break away from Somalia both of which have much stronger economies than Somalia. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, of course you are right. The, the Houthis, uh, the Houthi Shia school is different from the uh, Iranian 12er uh, Shia school. But it's not an important. Iran is supporting Sunnis, so why not to support uh, other uh, Shia? I, I mean, for Iran, any party who is ready to follow the interests of Iran is welcome. This is uh, one point. The second one, what we see in Yemen is exactly what Iran is doing, for instance, for long with Hezbollah. There are two ways to improve the military capabilities. One is to provide the complete system, the, the hardware, and just to teach them how to operate. The second, which Iran preferred, is to deliver the technology, to deliver the components that are not available in Beirut or in, uh, or in uh, Sada, but to help them to produce or at least to assemble drones, uh, missiles, and so on, uh, by their own. So all the time when uh, they are blamed that uh, they are uh, proxies of Iran and they are using Iranian uh, equipment, they, they, their argument is no. It's produced here in, in Yemen, and it's partly true, not, not completely true. So this is uh, the, uh, uh, the second point. Regarding Somalia, I think that uh, because of the weakness of the central regime in uh, Mogadishu, almost all the parties, uh, without formal recognition, are uh, negotiating with Somaliland and Puntland. Russia is negotiating with Somaliland to open a military uh, naval base. Okay, so let's say all the rules, according to the traditional system that all the countries in the world recognize only the Somalian government, doesn't work any longer. They are negotiating. Ethiopia is working to open a port in Somaliland. Uh, 
United Arab Emirates uh, want to develop in Punta. Everything is uh, different today. Yeah. Any other question? Please. Uh, I'd just like to hear a little more of your views about the Emirates' motivations and resources to make those motivations a uh, reality. Okay. And you have also a question? I was going to ask for you. אוקיי. They succeeded more or less from 1991 onwards to be out of the uh, bloodshed and famine and all, all the disasters of, the, of Somalia and even to have a kind of democratic system. Let's say more democratic than uh, many other systems around. And in spite of this fact, because of the, uh, let's say, international tradition, no countries agreed to recognize uh, uh, Somaliland as an independent uh, state. But practically, they are functioning as uh, an independent state. I think that the last uh, several years because of this tremendous competition between external forces in the region they don't care any longer uh, about uh, this traditional policy and they are ready to to make business with uh, Somaliland so I think that for them it's uh, a golden period uh, to develop and they uh, even if not formally, but de facto recognized as a semi-independent uh, country. It's interesting to see that uh, Prime Minister uh, Abiy from Ethiopia, he is in process to negotiate or help negotiation between the Somali government and uh, Somaliland, and he hosted a three patriate uh, meeting in uh, Addis and it seems that they are ready to find a kind of uh, uh, solution. Again, your, your, your question, would you like to focus it more? Uh, no. Because it's, because it's I, huge. I'd really like to hear your, your views on it. You sort of, you didn't spend a lot of time on the app. And obviously, they're becoming much more active all the way across North Africa. You mean about Yemen? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, if we look at uh, Yemen, I think that uh, there are two main uh, perspectives that we have to take in, uh, in consideration. One is the Saudi, and the second is uh, the Iranian uh, Houthi. For Saudi Arabia, uh, Yemen is the backyard, traditional. And uh, Again, I, I think that very little attention was paid uh, for the problems between Yemen and uh, Saudi Arabia for long. But the Houthi problem didn't start uh, now. Actually, if you read in the books, you will find that they are talking about the six Sada wars. The rebellion started in 2004, and between 2004 and 2009, they fought six wars. The last war in 2009 
the Houthis first time attacked Saudi Arabian positions along the border. And Saudi Arabia, of course, uh, intervened and it ended with a kind of ceasefire. Since then, since 2009, Saudi understood that they have a, a real problem. Not just problem of uh, Al-Qaeda, they succeeded to... I, I don't have enough time, but if I look at this stronghold of Al-Qaeda in, uh, in Yemen, it's a result of the Saudi Arabian success to depress the Al-Qaeda branch in Saudi Arabia. And this success in 2004-2006 forced Al-Qaeda to relocate to Yemen, which was weaker with limited capabilities, and they were able to build up this stronghold. But from the Saudi point of view, this was not the main challenge. The main challenge was a lesson learned from the 2000 Saudi war. What was the result? Again, I, I'm not sure that anybody heard about it. <coughs> the border between Yemen and Saudi Arabia is about 2,000 kilometers. You try to build the fence with Mexico. They built a fence along the border with Yemen. Doesn't mean that uh, it helps a lot, not, especially not now. But for Yemen, it's necessary as a part of the strategic vision to be in control over Yemen. Because otherwise, it will turn to be a front line, a direct threat on, on Saudi Arabia and on Saudi Arabian interests regarding, for instance, uh, the freedom of uh, navigation in, in Babel Mandel. The, the policy or the strategy of uh, MBS uh, is more proactive than ever before. And from the moment that they took the decision to intervene in 2015, they cannot go out of from this war without certain achievements. They cannot. On the other hand, Iran, as I said before, the Iranian inspirations are the sky is the limit. Uh, I mean, on one hand, they are going to the ancient theological uh, competition between the Shia and the Sunnah and the depression of the Shia since the Battle of Karbala and, uh, and so on, and uh, uh, to regain for the Shia the leading position in the Muslim world. This is theory. What is the practice? If I take from 1979 the Khomeini doctrine, he considered from the very beginning the Iranian revolution is not local, it's not Persian, it's an Islamic revolution. The name of the state is the Islamic state. They looked themselves as the leading of the true uh, Islam. And of course, if I follow in this theological level who is the leader of the Muslims, the one who is holding the holy places of the Islam. So what is the name of the Saudi royal regime? The custodians of the holy mosques. The Iranians want to be the custodians of the holy mosques. When you look at the manifest of Hezbollah, what are the long-standing goals of Hezbollah? And Hezbollah was formed by Iran. It's, it's a pure Iranian proxy, of course, with Lebanese orientation. <coughs> Take control of the third holy place. Exactly. I mean, what, what uh, was the vision? To take control over uh, Mecca and Medina, I think that it will be really uh, earthquake in the Muslim uh, history because uh, at the end, the majority, 85%, 90%, uh, 
maybe more, are Sunni. And they will never accept that Shia will control uh, Mecca and Medina. So what left? Al-Aqsa. So if you look at the goals of uh, Hezbollah, they are practical people. So it was to liberate South Lebanon from the Israeli occupation uh, in the long, uh, uh, long run to try to form Lebanon into the model of the Islamic uh, Republic and to liberate Jerusalem. This is uh, the vision. So now take this vision Translated to practical uh, policy of using force and proxies and uh, alliances, as I said before, on the northern flank it's quite successful. In the southern flank it's more problematic. So there are two enclaves of Shia that. Iran tried to use in the past. One is in Bahrain, and the second in the, unfortunately, in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia, in the most oil-rich area, the majority of the population are Shia. So from time to time, those who are monitoring the, the area, you can see that there are some terror attacks and arrests and, uh, and so on. But the main concentration of potential allies are in Yemen. So it's logical, according to the vision of Iran, that they will try to reach Yemen and by doing this, they will contain all their enemies uh, in between. Any further questions? Is it okay with this time? Yeah, one more question. One more, yeah. please. Okay, my question about the, uh, the Red Sea and Gulf of Adam uh, collision. Uh, if we look Now, this is like a political coalition more than well-functioning uh, strategic. So what's your prediction about the future functionality of this coalition? You, you speak about the coalitions that I mentioned here because there are some overlapping coalitions. For instance, when in 2015 Saudi Arabia intervened in Yemen, they formed a coalition of 10 countries. Many of the countries are from the Red Sea region. Now, in 2018, they formed a specific alliance that I men mentioned before that include only Red Sea region uh, countries. I think that it's a part of a process that uh, even the United States is involved, uh, let's say, two years ago, but it was again on the table in the Varsha meeting uh, two years ago, what is called, uh, I want to be precise, the name is a Middle East Strategic Alliance, or uh, MESA, and it's better known as the Arab NATO. This is an American initiative. I think that uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo is one of the leadings of this initiative to build regional uh, alliances backed by the United States, but this alliance in the future will enable to reduce the direct American involvement in the region, they will be strong enough to maintain their interests by themselves. I think that the countries in the region understand that uh, the United States 
is less interested in involvement in the region. Not uh, selling uh, arms. <laughs> I mean, the deal with Saudi Arabia uh, is one of the best. You have to take in consideration that Saudi Arabia is the second uh, biggest arms importer in the world. And the United Arab Emirates is the third one. Okay, so nobody wants to lose such a market. But it doesn't mean that American troops should be deployed in Yemen or in uh, Syria or, or in Iraq. And with this understanding, uh, the local uh, countries are concerned. And they try to initiate potential alternatives. To tell you that uh, I'm looking at this uh, alliance something reliable that uh, will be operational in the short term, of course not. But it reflects a way of thinking, a way of uh, a reflection of the concerns of the countries in the region and uh, in the book. And to finish this uh, discussion, I think that the U.S. has to take the lead because without real support from the United States, Saudi Arabia and the coalition will lose the war in Yemen. And later on, you can see how difficult it is to the United States to deal with Iran in the Persian Gulf. It will be the same there. So it's better to invest now. It's cheap. Doesn't demand a lot. Then to leave it for the future with much higher price. So our time is over, so thank you for listening.